If chocolate is your weakness, the real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate can be your strength. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. The FDA recently issued a qualified health claim saying that high flavanol cocoa powder may help prevent cardiovascular disease. It may even be a helpful tool in managing cognitive decline. Flava Naturals dark chocolate bars and cocoa powder deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate with great flavor and minimal sugar. Their secret is sourcing premium high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. Makes a great Mother's Day gift. To order, just go to flavanaturals.com. As an intelligent medicine listener, you can get 20% off site-wide for a limited time. Just use code SAVE20 at checkout at flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. I want to take the opportunity to uh, welcome uh, one of my favorite guests. Uh, she's appeared several times here on Intelligent Medicine, but she's got a new book entitled Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Destroying Our Health and the Environment. One Scientist's Determined Quest to Reveal the Truth. Dr. Seneff is a senior research scientist at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratories. She has a bachelor's degree in biology, however, and she has a minor in food and nutrition. Uh, and uh, she's authored over three dozen peer-reviewed journal papers on topics relating human disease, nutritional deficiencies, and toxic exposures. Uh, she is a brilliant scientist, but also uh, a bit of an iconoclast because uh, sometimes uh, she tilts her lance at uh, subjects that are sort of um, the forbidden realm of science. Uh, she has now written a book entitled Toxic Legacy, How the Weed Killer Glyphosate is Drawing Our Health and Environment. So without further ado, here's Dr. Seneff. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. It's uh, great talking to you again. And so, uh, you know, give us a little history on uh, glyphosate, uh, also known as Roundup. Uh, what is it and why do farmers use so much of it? Right. So it's been heralded as a fantastic discovery. It was really back way back in the 1960s. It was first uh, used as a, it was patented as a chelating agent. And they had no idea that it could kill weeds at that time. But they figured that out later. And it was Monsanto who patented, patented it as a herbicide, I think, in 1968 or 1969. And then it was put on the market starting in 1974. So it's been around for like four decades, um, being used extensively in agriculture. And of course, also it's a very common herbicide, the most, the dominant herbicide that's used in residential um, areas. So to kill the dandelions in your yard or to get rid of the weeds that are growing in your walkway. I mean, this is something that's very common, uh, commonly used and it's considered to be extremely safe to humans, which is why it's so popular. Around 19, late 1990s, they came up with these GMO Roundup Ready crops, uh, major crops of the processed food industry. They figured out how to insert a bacterial gene into the crop, which gave it a kind of a Superman behavior that it was uh, insensitive to glyphosate. Otherwise, it kills all plants. So something that kills all plants, you have to think, is not 
potentially not safe for humans, but the the big deal was this this chemical is wonderful. It kills all right. plants. It has no toxicity to humans. They, they thought there was some sort of a firewall between uh, the human kingdom and the plant kingdom so that uh, it was the ideal agent. I mean, it, it targets only the bad guys and has no impact on pets or humans whatsoever. That's right, and that's that's the pitch, and you know, and they got by with it through through really irregular uh, activities when they approved it. I mean, the whole process of studying it was fraught with uh, error and, and uh, misguidance. You know, they they basically designed the experiments to fail. Like they didn't, they, they they studied it in isolation, and then they made these chemical formulations that are much more toxic. In part because they enable the glyphosate to be taken up by the cell. So when you study it in isolation, it doesn't look too bad. On animals, even you know, and then you only study it for three months, but the uh, symptoms start showing up at four months. It's a slow kill, and I talk about that in my book a lot. Glyphosate is a slow kill, which is another reason why you don't notice it. It's what's causing your problems. People start getting all kinds of weird diseases; they don't know why, and it's, it's because they've been chronically exposed to glyphosate over years and years, and it accumulates in your body. That's another thing that Monsanto assured us that it goes straight in, straight out, doesn't really get modified. You know, it gets turned into AMPA by some gut microbes and then it uh, you know some of it does and then it just goes right out through the urine and it's gone and that's so wonderful um that's also a lie a, a certain portion of it ends up in your tissues and can stay there for a very long time so uh what about uh the potential for it to cause toxicity uh you know i thought uh that some of it was mediated by the microbiome but in your book, I mean, you, you definitely talk about that, you know, that it, it has a disruptive effect on the gut bacteria. But you also talk about some other mechanisms of toxicity that I hadn't really heard of. And, you know, because you're a, a great research scientist, uh, you're able to do a deep dive on, on some of the biochemistry and molecular biology here. That, yes, that's the part that really, really fascinated me and grabbed, grabbed me, uh, got a, really, really got me obsessed, actually. And it was the realization that I had. In fact, Anthony Samso, I worked with him. We published six papers together, and he's a, a toxicologist. He's a, an expert chemist, uh, worked in Arthur D. Little lab for his entire career. Um, <clears throat> and um, he ha has patents and stuff, and so he's a very good chemist. He, now he's retired, and he has this his own lab that he works uh, operates out of his home. He's still doing experiments on glyphosate, and he's still discovering things about glyphosate that other people don't know, so he's quite fascinating. But he suggested to me, I think in... Uh, uh, 2016, maybe 2015, he suggested that glyphosate might be getting into proteins by mistake in place of the coding amino acid glycine, which was a very intriguing idea. And it was an idea I had considered it as well, and I had rejected it because I thought, uh, mistakenly, I thought that if it had something attached to its nitrogen atom, it wouldn't be able to hook up into the chain. So these proteins... So, so excuse me, what, you're, what you're saying is that, in effect, it, it's a mutagen that it can actually... Uh, alter the genetic code in some way? Well, yeah, it's sort of a mutagen, but not really, because the code is intact. But the problem is that when the code gets translated into protein, mm -hmm. and it needs to put a glycine, because the code says, okay, glycine goes here. And you know, the proteins are paper dolls. They're like paper dolls lining up on a stick in a chain, um, and each amino acid is holding hands with its neighbors. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and and one of, and the nitrogen atom is needed to hold hands. So that's why I thought, well, it's already got something on there; it can't hold hands anymore. It's already holding hands with something else, so to speak. So we can't do it. it was my mistaken thought, but it's actually not true because there's a coating amino acid called proline that also has something attached to its nitrogen atom. No problem; it can still hold hands. Nitrogen has two; it basically has two ways to hold hands with one nitrogen. If you know what I mean, it can hold two hands. <laughs> so it's got the hand that it's holding, the stuff that it's attached to, the extra material that makes it not quite a glycine. It still holds on to that, but then it also has another hand to stick onto the chain, so it can still link, link, yeah, link up, which is crucial, um, you know, that it can fit. Now, the other problem, of course, is it has this bulky thing hanging onto its nitrogen atom, which could be in the way, so it could be that it's too crowded. And I think there are glycine residues that are protected because they've got neighbors that are big and bulky, so they, it won't fit. Glyphosate won't fit. So it's a specific situation in which uh, glyphosate can substitute for glycine. And I think there even is more specificity in where it most likely will substitute, where it's going to be encouraged to substitute in specific proteins that bind to phosphate. And this is the thing we talk about a lot. In the, I, the, it's central. It's a central story in my book. And it comes. I start talking about it around Chapter 5 about the glycine analog, and then the next chapter talks about the specific phosphate problem, proteins that bind phosphate. And that turns out to be many, many super important proteins in the body. And um, and then once you say maybe that's what's happening, and then you look at the enzymes that glyphosate has been shown experimentally to, to suppress, it all fits. So it's a giant jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's quite fun. I love puzzles. I love puzzles. <laughs> and this is really the mega puzzle. You could never hope to have a better puzzle than this one because it's so fun the way it all hooks up. And you find uh, diseases that are going up dramatically in, in, in today in our society. And you think, okay, they're going up dramatically exactly in step with the dramatic rise in glyphosate usage. The usage has exploded. It's like 15 times as much today as it was in the, you know, like the 1990s. When they introduced the GMO Roundup Ready crops, they started using glyphosate very comfortably on those. That's like corn and soy, canola, uh, alfalfa, sugar beets. A lot of those crops go into the processed food industry. So you get glyphosate all over the processed foods. But they're also using it as a desiccant right before harvest on a lot of non-GMO crops. Even on a non-GMO crop, yeah. Right. What's the reason for doing that? Is is it because it retards the, the... basically the rotting or the decay of these crops? Is, is that the idea there? It's interesting. It dries them out and it forces them to go to seed. When they get injured by this glyphosate, they immediately go to seed. So like with wheat, oh. you'll get a, a greater yield. Oh. You'll synchronize the, oh. the, um, the harvest so that everything's going to seed at the same time oh. because they're being shocked by this glyphosate. Well, that's handy. And, yeah, and it also makes the residue uh, easier to clear because it, you know, it basically dries out the crop so it's easier to get rid of all the... Mm-hmm stuff once you've harvested the, the fruits of the crop. Um, and then also you might be uh, rushing against a winter frost. And so in Canada, that's particularly problematic. Wheat grown in Canada is probably sprayed with glyphosate more than wheat grown in, in more southern areas hmm. because they could be facing a frost that could kill the crop. Hmm. Um, and so right. those all seem like good reasons. And, of course, because it's perfectly safe for humans, who cares that it's getting into the food? But it's actually getting into these foods at higher levels. In many cases, the highest levels are showing up in non-GMO foods that are sprayed right before harvest. Well, let, let's, let's pull back that. slightly because, you know, uh, glyphosate, I mean, even now, you know, as you watch TV, you know, you, you can see advertisements from law firms saying, if you've developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma after using mm-hmm. Roundup, uh, call, you know, 1-800-SUE-THE-BASTARDS, you know, because there's actually a precedent now for mm-hmm. implicating Roundup uh, or glyphosate 
uh, and certain forms of, you know, relatively uncommon cancer. And there's like class action lawsuits, you know, uh, with multiple plaintiffs and there's like a big pot of money set aside for the victims of this. Uh, but what you're saying is that there are other implications for, you know, mess, less dramatic and obvious manifestations of toxicity, you know, with mm-hmm. really pervasive toxicity across the board in a variety of diseases. Right. It's actually incredible when you look at the list of diseases. And this is something that Nancy Swanson um, worked hard on. And she and I collaborated. First, she contacted me after Anthony and I wrote our first paper. And she had been, uh, she was convinced she was being poisoned by glyphosate. And that's why she was sick. And she looked into it and found she's a, a physicist and she can crunch numbers. And she found all kinds of uh, diseases that are going up dramatically in prevalence in our country today. It's quite a shocking list. And you know, diabetes, obesity, right, autism, I mean, Alzheimer's, these things are all going up dramatically. Uh, Liver disease, fatty liver disease, um, kidney problems, you know, um, gut issues, of course, many, many different gut problems are all going up dramatically in our in today's times. We're having tremendous difficulty with uh, the cost of you, even celiac disease. I mean, it, it's thought Absolutely. that celiac disease. I mean, people have been eating wheat since time immemorial, and and I think the incidence of celiac disease was far less. Uh, what's changed? Right, exactly. In fact, there's a whole paper on celiac that Anthony and I wrote. One of our papers was uh, focused on celiac disease, and we showed that the use of glyphosate on wheat has gone up exactly in step with the rise in celiac disease, and that's different from the pattern for the use of glyphosate on corn and soy, which doesn't match as well. So it really looks like, you know, from a correlation standpoint, it points to the wheat, and it makes total sense because glyphosate, I think glyphosate is actually getting into the wheat proteins, but also getting into the enzymes that break them down. And in particular, glyphosate disrupts lactobacillus, which is a key mm-hmm. um, beneficial bacterium mm-hmm. in the gut that, that is very sensitive to glyphosate. So when that bacterium gets killed, that bacterium actually makes several different proteins that specialize in breaking the um, amino acid proline apart from the other amino acids. Proline is a is the amino acid that has extra stuff attached to its nitrogen atom, the one that made me realize glyphosate could do that too. And that amino acid is actually very rigid and it's more difficult to get at it because of this crowding, so it's harder for enzymes to break it apart from the other amino acids. So there's these specialized enzymes that these lactobacillus have developed that helps the host to break down wheat. But the lactobacillus get killed and so then that doesn't happen, and then the wheat uh, stays, the, the, the peptide sequence from the wheat stays together, doesn't get taken apart, and it's those peptide it's sequences that cause. It's not broken down properly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a sequence of amino acids that didn't get separated out because there was too much proline in there and you couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And then that's what causes an immune uh, response that then ends up being autoimmune disease through mm-hmm. something called molecular mimicry. Uh, if you have too many antibodies... Could you talk a little bit about the, the shikimate pathway? Because it's the shikimate pathway that destroys plants. But, you know, I, I you have such a nuanced understanding of the molecular biology and the biochemistry involved. Uh, you know, it's almost like uh, these molecules are sort of dancing in your head and you can visualize them. I wish I had that. Uh, but with the shikimate pathway, uh, is not it, do, do plants not share the shikimate pathway along with bacteria? And that's why... Uh, Roundup is so bad for the soil uh, microbiome as well for as the GI microbiome. That's exactly right. That's really, and that's where I started, and that's when I first realized because I knew that I was looking at autism. I was very worried about autism when I, you know, I first got into glyphosate, 
And when I first learned about glyphosate, I was aware that autistic kids have a lot of problems with their gut. And so I was looking for, I was thinking maybe they were taking too many antibiotics. I was thinking maybe there's some way that their gut's getting messed up, but I didn't know what it was. And then when uh, I heard this talk by Professor Don Huber, who is an expert on plant pathology, and he gave an amazing talk that I happened to be at the conference, happened to hear the talk. I didn't even know what glyphosate was before that talk. That was 2012, really changed my life. And he talked about, you know, glyphosate disrupts the soil microbiome and it disrupts the gut microbiome the same way. And you get this imbalance, you get these pathogens, you know, and then you get inflammatory gut, leaky gut, all these problems. And it is because the um, different bacteria have different sensitivities and that depends mm -hmm. on their yep. shikimate pathway. And mm -hmm. almost all the microbes, many, many of the microbes have the shikimate pathway, mm -hmm. which is the same one that's essential for plants. It's a major pathway in plants. And it produces these three essential arom aromatic amino acids, tryptophan, tyrosine, and phenylalanine. And it does the same thing in the microbes. So, in fact, the microbes are supplying us with those yep. essential amino acids. Yep. Uh, in effect, uh, neurotransmitter precursors, yeah. <laughs> exactly, that's right. That's the precursors. And even to uh, thyroid hormone and yep. many of the B vitamins. So, I mean, there's a huge, and also even in the plants, there's a whole lot of complicated uh, molecules that are produced by plants like by herbs that are that have therapeutic benefit you know, a lot of the um, natural medicines are based on these complex uh, molecules that are produced by plants those also come out of the shikimate pathway so the plants are getting disrupted in their ability to produce produce these healing micro, you know uh, molecules hmm. that are used in uh, herbal medicine hmm. and and then our our bacteria can't produce enough of these aromatic amino acids, which means a deficiency in those, which means a deficiency in serotonin, which is the feel-good hormone. Wow. And so many things go south after that. Wow. Uh, you also, in the book, uh, you know, reference uh, mitochondria, and you, you kind of presage mm -hmm. that by talking about uh, the phosphate molecule. I know enough about mm -hmm. biochemistry to know that that is associated with uh, energy production, ATP. Exactly. So... Um, is it possible that uh, we're suppressing mitochondrial function with with uh, exposure to glyphosate? There's no doubt. There's no doubt. And in fact, there's a lot of it. I, we talked about, I talked in the book about several different uh, papers that were published that specifically showed that glyphosate causes mitochondrial damage. It causes inflammation in the mitochondria, it depletes glutathione, which is an essential antioxidant in the mitochondria, and it disrupts the mitochondrial membrane. I mean, it does, and they don't quite understand how it does it, but I think it does it through this glycine substitution in part. And maybe in large part through messing up um, glycines and critical proteins that are involved with the mitochondrial function. Hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm aware of this and, you know, I don't use Roundup and I use uh, non-GMO foods whenever possible. Uh, <clears throat> I stay away from a direct exposure to uh, glyphosate. I is that enough or is it so pervasive now in the environment mm -hmm. that we're all getting exposed inadvertently? Yes. I mean, it's pretty much everywhere now, especially in the United States. We use 20% uh, of the world's su uh, supply of glyphosate with only 4% of the world's population. So we get per person a lot more exposure than uh, people in other countries. And uh, the other thing that I've become very interested in over the past year is the development of the biofuel industry. This has me very, very concerned. I hmm. suspect that Why? glyphosate is getting biofuels. Yes. You know about hmm. biofuels? 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's like uh, the answer to our uh, fossil fuel uh, dilemma, you know, is that we just uh, use uh, vegetation and plant matter instead of digging for coal. Sounds good. Right. It sounds fantastic, right? We solved the uh, global climate change problem. So we're moving up very quickly. We've actually been really ramping it up in the last few years, making tremendous progress in sort of building these plants that can take. So, for example, you grow the wheat, you spray it with glyphosate right before the harvest, you harvest it, you have that stubble. You grab that stubble, throw it on a barge, take it down to New York City and run it through a factory and you produce um, various kinds of biofuels. You've got biogas, you know, you've got bioethanol, uh, biodiesel, uh, you've even got bio home heating oil, all kinds of different bio versions of all these different uh, originally sourced from oil and, and coal and gas. You know, these original natural fuels are being mm-hmm. replaced with these fuels that are being co- uh, converted from um plant material that's been sprayed with glyphosate right before harvest. It's part of the new green economy. Exactly. And it, and I think it's a, a very big worry because I'm looking at uh, the countries that have had a really hard time controlling COVID-19. Uh, you know, much of Europe, the United States, Brazil, um, and even South Africa, these are all countries that use a lot of glyphosate. You know, Europe's much better with GMOs, but they use a lot of glyphosate on the crops. And they also were very big on biofuels because, you know, oil, gas is expensive in Europe. So they're really leaders in the biodiesel industry, for example. Brazil makes lots and lots of bioethanol out of um, sugarcane that's sprayed with glyphosate right before harvest. Mm-hmm. And Brazil was very interesting because there's a new paper, and I didn't talk about it in my book because it came out after my book was, was done uh, just recently, last couple of months, um, out of Brazil, where they looked for bio, uh, looked for glyphosate in nanoparticles in the air. And they looked in the city. It's a region of Brazil where they have these, you know, crops that are using mm-hmm. glyphosate. Uh, and they looked in the city, and they looked in the areas where the crops were being grown, where the glyphosate was being sprayed. And they were surprised to find there was glyphosate in the nanoparticles everywhere they looked, and they found there was higher levels in the city than there was in the places where the crops were being sprayed with glyphosate. They were surprised by that. I think it's because uh, Brazil has a huge bioethanol industry. They have trucks that run on almost pure bioethanol. Hmm. They make it from the sugarcane. They spray it with glyphosate. And then they're concentrating the the glyphosate from bioethanol fumes. You know, it's just evaporated. So, so you say it can be airborne. I mean, that's a whole new ballgame. That's what I'm saying. That's what they found as well. We tend to think of it in the water, on the food. But uh, as an airborne uh, toxin, uh, could it have a direct adverse effect on, say, the the lung epithelium, the lining of the lung? Exactly. You got it. And that's why I think we're having trouble with COVID because I I have a whole chapter in my book about – glyphosate disrupting the uh, innate immune system. There's a whole chapter on that, and I talk about ways in which it would do that. It's very clear to me that it's causing us to have a severe deficiency in our innate immune system, which forces us to use the adaptive immune system to fight uh, infectious diseases. But but and that COVID-19, depends on, on immune memory. It takes time to get an adaptive response to, uh, say, exactly. a virus. So the first line of defense is the innate immune system. Absolutely. And if you have a strong innate immune system, you never get around to making antibodies. You get over the disease without ever making antibodies. And that's an ideal solution because antibodies always have a risk of becoming autoantibodies. And we have an epidemic in autoimmune disease. Part of it is, of course, the food, like I mentioned, the, uh, the gluten. Uh, food allergies, you know, getting food proteins that are causing the immune system to respond to those and produce antibodies. But you're also getting antibodies to diseases like viruses um, that are then uh, attacking the, the host uh, tissues because of um, this molecular mimicry problem that the uh, antibody mistakes the human uh, protein for 
the protein that it had memorized that came from originally from a virus. So if you don't have to make antibodies, you can get over your disease without making antibodies. That is a very good thing because that will keep you uh, keep the autoimmune disease away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have an epidemic in autoimmune diseases among children today. Um, it's just yep. really sad to see how many kids are suffering from eczema and asthma and, of course, all kinds of food allergies. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I am so shocked by the <laughs> all the food allergies that kids have today. You know, when I was a child, I never yep. knew anybody who had any allergy to anything. <clears throat> and, and, you know, and today so it's just, you something watch happening out. here, yeah. what it is ain't exactly clear. Uh, you know, there are many environmental factors that have changed over the past few decades, but uh, uh, potentially a big contributor is our uh, liberal use of things like glyphosate. I absolutely think so. I think it's major. Of course, we have many, many other toxic chemicals. I'm not saying glyphosate's the only thing that's causing all these problems, but we really need to change our ways. I think we need to think in a different framework. We, we seem to be so trigger happy with these chemicals, and and we seem to be willing to just kill, kill, kill. You know, microbes are our friends. We really should appreciate even just taking antibiotics. It wipes out your gut bacteria. You know, you can get a lot of problems with your gut because you've been taking antibiotics to fight off some pathogen that you have because glyphosate has wrecked the balance of your gut you know because the beneficial bacteria are especially sensitive and that's been shown in studies i mentioned the lactobacillus and also bifidobacteria those two are so important they're vulnerable in the yeah. early life yeah and they're very sensitive to glyphosate so you get you know clostridia salmonella um other kinds of and you get mold too, aspergillus, you know, you get candida, all these things become a problem um, because of the um, imbalance that's created by glyphosate. Okay. So good point at which to pause because we've laid the groundwork for our discussion in part two. In part two, uh, I want to focus on some other aspects of the uh, glyphosate problem, uh, but also look towards uh, solutions because uh, there's a groundswell internationally of resistance to the use of Roundup. Uh, and uh, I want to find out from today's guest, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, uh, what uh, types of initiatives are underway to protect our soil, to protect ourselves, to protect um, even our pets and farm animals. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. <laughs> 